Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the purposeful effort to erase the history of anti-black terrorism in America, and the renewed efforts to expose our true history in order to learn from it and create the opportunity for healing. Clips today are from Vox, Counterspin, Into America, Today Explained, Democracy Now!, the Al Franken podcast, and the Majority Report. We're driving in what's known as Black Wall Street. It's where one of the nation's worst episodes of racial violence took place. In 1921, a neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called the Greenwood District, was a bustling community of Black-owned businesses. Tulsa locals know that period of Greenwood's history as a kind of golden age. If you can imagine just a, like an old-time downtown, things like movie theaters, pharmacies, hair salons, and so forth. They called it Black Wall Street. It was a mecca. It was a huge success. But Black Wall Street was also an anomaly. It thrived at a time when the KKK was incredibly active in Oklahoma, and the nation had just been through the Red Summer of 1919, when white mobs murdered black people in dozens of incidents across the U.S. There needed to be a sort of match or an igniter tossed on these embers. And that event was, that trigger event, was an incident that involved two teenagers, Dick Rowland, 19-year-old, black boy who shined shoes downtown, Sarah Page, 17-year-old white girl who ran an elevator in a downtown building called the Drexel Building. He went to the building, boarded the elevator, something happened, and Sarah Page began to scream. They both ran out of the elevator. Now, we don't know exactly what happened in this elevator, but a day later, Roland was arrested and taken to the courthouse. The local newspaper ran an article claiming Roland had assaulted Page. Even though Page refused to press charges, the article was essentially a call to action for whites. A large white mob began to gather on the lawn of the courthouse. Dick Rowland was in jail on the top floor. A number of black men, several dozen, marched down to the courthouse to protect him. Some of them armed. There was a struggle between one of the black men in the small group and one of the white men in the larger group, and things sort of went south from that point. Hundreds of white people descended upon Black Wall Street, armed. Black residents withdrew behind the railroad tracks that marked off the Greenwood District. Some of them were armed and fought back, but they were outnumbered by the white mob, which shot their way through. The white mob murdered. They looted, and they set fire to Black Wall Street. This was the strategy, if you will, of how to deal with these communities, with these successful black communities. The effects were disastrous. For two days, the Greenwood District burned, martial law was declared, and the National Guard was brought in. By the time the massacre ended, Greenwood was in ruins. More than 1,200 homes were destroyed, and 35 blocks burned. The exact number of casualties is harder to pin down. Some initially only reported that white people died. Others reported somewhere between 30 and 100 mostly black casualties. But estimates now put that number closer to 300. As for those that survived, thousands of them lived in tent cities in the months that followed and were left to pick up the pieces of rubble they once called home. After the massacre, the cover-up started. Records went missing from city files, including the very article that started it all. It makes photos from this time all the more important as part of the historical record. But back in 1921, these images served a very different purpose. So photo postcards like these were pretty widely distributed after the massacre. At the time, they were part of white supremacist culture and kept as souvenirs of racially charged crimes. Now, they're preserved to make sure this part of Tulsa's history isn't forgotten, and they paint a clear picture of how much destruction there was that day. On the postcards, it's called the Tulsa Race Riot. 
a name that itself erases what really happened. By calling it a riot, it's a way of, of trying to rewrite the history, assuming that there were both sides at fault, and that was not the case. I call it a massacre, and I call it that because that's what it was. Greenwood eventually rebuilt, but nearly a century later, there's a part of this story that still haunts the city. No one actually knows where the victims' bodies are. We've got to find our people. We've got to put them at rest. You know, if not, we continue to be haunted by what was done so many years ago. Kevin Ross, a local writer, is one of many in Tulsa descended from people who lost everything in the massacre. So in this cemetery, there are only two official victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Right. How many victims do you think there are? After all these years, I think 300 is putting it mild. In 1997, the city finally put together a commission to study the massacre and help piece together what happened in 1921. They compiled records and eyewitness accounts. The bullets were just raining down over us. They set our house on fire and went right straight to the curtains and set the curtains on fire. These accounts are especially important now because none of these survivors are alive anymore. And they also provided new information. Some mentioned trucks, like this one, loaded with victims of the riot. One riot witness in particular came forth testifying that he saw bodies being dumped in Oaklawn Cemetery. This is it. This is the area. Using the survivor accounts, records, and eventually radar, the city was able to pinpoint three locations with anomalies in the soil. Only one step was left, to excavate. But it was something the city, at the time, wasn't up for doing. For many Tulsans, it was a part of history best forgotten, and not worth investigating. In some ways, today, that sentiment remains. Kind of waste of money. Why do you think that? It's over, it's done with. But there are clear signs of a city that's ready to come to terms with a dark chapter in its history. Honestly, that's a lot of missing people, people that probably had families. We owe it to the people who whose blood has actually fertilized the grounds of this place. There was a tremendous amount of racism. Injustice plus time does not equal justice. Today, a new mayor is reopening the investigation. I think a pretty basic compact that a city makes with its citizens is, if somebody murders you, we will do everything we can to find out what happened to you and give your family closure. And whether that, whether you were murdered yesterday or you were murdered 98 years ago. The city will be looking into the three areas that the commission noted. That process of finding out what lies beneath Tulsa and DNA matching any remains with descendants could take years. The investigation is just one part of a bigger historical reckoning. But the reality is it can't undo the crimes or the cover-up of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. This story is the greatest conspiracy of silence that I've ever seen in history. Then as now is importantly a story about media, about what newspapers told people and they believed at the time, and then afterward what folks were told to remember and told to forget. You wrote about it recently for Free Press, and I would refer listeners to that piece. But talk a little, if you would, about the role of journalism in the Tulsa massacre. The role of, of, of the, the two main daily papers, the Tulsa World, which was the morning paper and the Tulsa Tribune afternoon paper, were critical. The Tulsa Tribune, for example, in the so-called light that sparked the massacre, but in the initial days afterwards as well, and, and going forward in the cover-up, making sure the story is basically forgotten in our society, so the Tulsa Tribune was owned by a publisher named Richard Lloyd-Jones. 
And in this book about the Tulsa massacre, when we think about white power structures in our society, when we think about hierarchies and white racial hierarchies in the society, the media companies are a part of that system, always have been. And this was a case in point. So the paper is very sympathetic, the Tulsa Tribune to the KKK, basically prints an advertisement about the KKK plans to come into Oklahoma. And then it focuses its coverage more so in May on issues of crime and criminality. They, they normally ignored black folks in Tulsa unless it dealt with crime. Mm-hmm. But they started focusing more on a campaign of like black lawlessness in Greenwood, the Greenwood district. But the night, as you mentioned in the intro, the May 31st headline of the false attack of Vic Rowland on a, a white teenage girl lights the spark that results in a white mob heading down to the courthouse to demand that Rollin be handed over to him and, and basically lynched. Mm-hmm. There's an editorial that many to believe was actually published in that paper as well that was predicting a lynching that night. But that editorial in years later, and, and also that front page story about the alleged rape, disappeared from the microfilm when they were to record the paper for historical purposes. But eyewitnesses and folks who were alive at the time remember that editorial. Right. So the idea that there was this daily news story that was very sensational in its details of this alleged rape, and then predicting the lynching that night, lit the match, thousands of white folks actually going to the courthouse. And the massacre itself, thousands of white people invaded Greenwood and torched the whole place. And then following that, the Tulsa world, which is still in existence today, is still a daily paper in Tulsa. All this language, both papers are saying bad N-word. You know, we got right. to get rid of these bad N-words in their community, right? right? It was a purposeful attempt to blame Black folks because what happened as well, the last important detail is that there was never a person who was lynched in Tulsa. I believe it was Black to that point. And so, so Black residents grabbed their arms, a lot of them were former World War I veterans, and he went down to the courthouse and asked the police if they needed help to protect Dick Rowland from being lynched. They were declined twice. And so the newspapers blamed black folks who brought their gun to try to protect someone from being lynched as the agitators of this. And that's how they found it. It was the black community that was the reason this happened. And it brought great shame on Tulsa. Now the Tulsa white community was responding in kind and trying to rebuild and black folks need to be very appreciative of this effort and get rid of, as you were mentioning, those leaders that they followed. And a lot of these leaders, including two black newspapers, were burned down too as well. The Tulsa Star and Oklahoma Sun. A.J. Smitherman was a very prominent member of the black community in Tulsa, a very powerful person. And he eventually, he fled the state because he was actually charged the black folks in the community were charged for instigating the massacre. And A.J. Smithman actually settled down and he left the state and he printed papers in Buffalo, New York, where he died. You know, you talk about the erasing of the incendiary editorial and there's been a kind of general erasure of what happened in Tulsa. It, it's kind of strange to hear folks saying, the little known, you know, that this invisible history. And I think, well, you know, I know a lot of black people who've been knowing about Tulsa, you know, but it's true that it is more widely speaking or among white people, it is hidden history. And that has something to do with media, too. There's just been a lot of silence around this story. Yeah, it was an intentional campaign. The Tulsa Tribune, which no longer exists, didn't mention the massacre until 50 years later. There was efforts to to cover it up. There was this white reporter back in 1971 who was asked, ironically, by the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce to write something and commemorate what happened on the 50th anniversary. He started researching this story and he started getting basically threatened by strangers that would approach him on the street and tell them not to write the story, calls to his house. Someone wrote on his car windshield with a bar of soap, better look under your hood, I believe it was written, right? Wow. And one of the things he stated in interviews is that there were still people who are alive who might be very prominent members of the community 
who actually took part in the massacre. And if you just think about it, the children of those folks who because thousands of people literally took part in this massacre. The everyday folks in Tulsa and the police deputized. Meanwhile, they declined black folks from trying to protect Dick Rowan, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they deputized white folks to go into Greenwood, set the place on fire, which he did, and then they put thousands of black folks in concentration camps for following that. They just rounded up everybody. And so a lot of these folks children they still may be alive as well and grandchildren so this you can see how a cover-up happens right because it implicates the powers that be in the city are going to be totally implicated and for the newspaper is obviously they played a role they played a role in it matter of fact when the publisher died there was no mention of it in the paper at all when he died of the own paper like his role in the tulsa massacre so this is how it happens and, and how is this really different than when the Kohanna Jones is going through and the issue of Kenya and North Carolina and all this attack against critical race theory? It's all the same thing. We have to keep that stuff buried in the past and not remember it because you remember it, let's say, it's a potential that you have to, when you reconcile with something, it's going to be a call for repair, yeah. right? Yeah. And folks don't want to address the repair part, what does reparations look like? How do you make a community whole? Like Greenwood, right? It was a community that was self-sustaining, that had everything it needed in that community. And it was destroyed. Again, you need a narrative, right? That's the whole thing with media. Like, you need narratives. You need narratives to dehumanize people. You need narratives to justify the massacre of people. And then you need narratives to talk about how white folks in this community were coming to the aid of those who were harmed. And they're the ones who were like the heroes and the narratives and often not telling the story is not only the narrative to, to give you political cover, but then not telling the story is another way of just total erasure, right? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. It's still going on. You know, this whole 1619 struggle with just to recognizing very basic facts in our nation's history. And you can see the backlash because, you know, at the end of the day, in my personal opinion, the question is whether it's like a multiracial democracy, which democracy has never been fully realized. Is it actually possible, right? <laughs> and when you have to reconcile with these stories and history, it's going to, of course, be called for repair. <laughs> you know, and that's one thing we don't want to do as a country, right? We want to run the repair. I believe even Joe Biden, correct me if I'm wrong, yesterday went with the Tulsa. He didn't mention anything about reparations. And it's three living survivors. It's three black folks who, uh, who are 107, 106, and 100 who survived the massacre. And uh, one of them, Ms. Fletcher yep. testified in Congress that she is still financially struggling, you know? Viola Ford Fletcher, 107 years old. Yeah. She was seven, saying she yeah. slept with the lights on ever since, because if I don't have the lights on, how how will I see to get out of my house? You know, like, I just, it's too much. It's too much to even get your brain around the harm and it's living history, you know? So I, I just want to come back to that question of bringing it into the present because, okay, right now, there are stories on this, you know? Yeah. Some are folks like Deneen Brown, who's been on it for decades, right? Yeah. And then, okay, here's the Wall Street Journal talking about multi-generational reverberations on family wealth, in Tulsa. Here's USA Today talking about how, oh, you know, it's not just Tulsa. Racist mobs, that's their language, have been a widespread and constant concern. We've got TV projects with LeBron James. We've got curricula. Mm -hmm. All right. So everybody who is invested in wanting this country to change knows that you take your shot when there's an opening. You know, we need understanding all the time but you take your shot where there's an opening. But right now, it seems like we're saying, look at Tulsa. It's an example of the depth and the breadth of the hatred, of the intergenerational harm, of the lie, and of the silencing and gaslighting and censoring. And I fear that what some folks are taking via the media is... Tulsa, what a crazy, exceptional episode in U.S. history, you know, thank goodness we aren't like that anymore. It matters not just to tell the story, but to show that it's not just 
story, you know? And and so I'm just wondering, like, I'm not negative on it. I appreciate the attention. I appreciate the spotlight. My question is, what's going to be left behind when media move away, when they're not talking about Watchmen, when they move away from the story of Tulsa? What's going to be the sediment? What's going to be learned from it? Yeah, that's the thing. I feel privileged and honored to be able to work on a project called Media 2070 that the Black Caucus After We Press created that's calling for media reparations for the Black community. And the thing, a part of reparations is reconciling and repair. For us, for myself, speaking for myself, you know, the idea that we have to address narrative in the history of anti-Black racism in, in the media system and narrative, narrative that's been intentionally weaponized in order to further white racial hierarchies in society. When we think about the federal government now, when we think about broadcasting, we think about broadband, it's been a policy of exclusion. It's been a policy of excluding black folks and other communities of color from ownership of our nation's infrastructure. Powerful institutions have been created by using our public airwaves, by the roads that we dig up and, and the broadband that we lay underneath the ground and that's our rights away have been used to generate great wealth and cause great harm to our communities by the stories that these institutions tell. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was born in 1946 in Tulsa and grew up here. My mother was uh, Ruth Sigler Avery, and she was born in 1914, and she was seven years old when, when she saw the race massacre. Joy's mother, Mrs. Sigler Avery, was a witness to the massacre, but unlike most white Tulsans of her generation, she chose not to keep the secret. My mom would talk about it a lot at family gatherings at Thanksgiving and Easter and various times that all the family was together. And she would talk about how she was only seven years old when she saw this truck full of dead bodies and that one of them hit a a pothole and there was a little boy about her age on the top of this truck and he turned his his face at that point and looked directly toward her and she said she'd never seen any dead bodies before and then this little boy her age looked at her straight in the face and she was petrified wow so she's carrying this story from that day with her entire life do you have any sense of how that affected her, looking over and seeing that black boy's eyes, that dead boy, how that might have affected her, why she held on to it for so long? I think she was very upset about it, but I think probably even more upset because I didn't believe her. Mm. Now, I just want to sit with that for one second. Joy and her sister, they didn't even believe their own mother. I'm sure my father knew that it was true, and people around her generation knew that it was true, but she couldn't get her daughters to to believe it because we had no experience of it. So you heard it from your mother, but did you learn about it in class at all? Did you ever, was it ever part of your school Oh, no. Lesson? In fact, we challenged her several times and said, Mom, nobody's written about it. Nobody talks about it. If you witness this, you're going to have to do the research on it because there is nothing in any books. There's nothing in civics class and in history of what's going on in Tulsa. Nobody had talked about it. Joy came up in Tulsa in the 1950s and 60s. The silence was deep and purposeful. Police records from the time of the massacre disappeared. Newspaper articles went missing from the city library. And it wasn't taught in schools until the 90s, if at all. All this motivated Mrs. Sigler Avery to embark on a mission of her own, to give a thorough account of what she saw that day, to prove that it happened. For about 30 years, she was talking to as many people as she could about what they had experienced. Her materials were so comprehensive and so unusual, so desperately needed, that they were accepted by Oklahoma State University at Tulsa. Her work was even used in the 2001 commission report about the massacre, where they called her a one-woman research bureau 
all because she was convinced that this history had been deliberately covered up. I have to wonder, as your mother is uncovering more and more about what happened here in Tulsa with the massacre, did you discover that some of your neighbors, friends, or maybe even family participated on the wrong side, as you say, in the massacre? Actually, I was more worried about waking up to having a cross burned Mm. on our front lawn. Right. (laughs) Because it was really scary. There were a lot of important people. When I was reading about the Ku Klux Klan, there were mayors and there were highly influential people who belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. (laughs) And so your mother kind of unearthing this stuff, you start to say to yourself, like, there might be people who want to keep this a secret so much so that maybe we're in danger. I began to feel that way. Wow. How have you, in in the the course of your adult life, and you have all that material that your mother, all the research, how did it change the way you viewed this community and race relations? Did you have to come to grips with the reality of your community also? I didn't really know how to. Why do you think it is that there are so many uh, white people who are still so reluctant to just embrace the truth and at least confront the truth? I would just say shame. Yeah. Is there anything um, that you've come across in your mother's research or heard later that haunts you, that shocks you? Is there is there a, a certain aspect of anything that you've learned that sits with you? Well, it's just, it seems strange that it takes a hundred years for people to fess up with what happened and tell the stories. And I think Marlon has been doing a really good job. Of Marlon Lavinar, who Joy is talking about, is the reverend at All Souls Unitarian Church in South Tulsa. Marlon Lavinar gave a sermon several years ago that was talking about my mom. And it was talking about the race massacre. And I think that was good in, in opening up the topic for other people to research You know, it seems like a lot of people right now are trying to rush towards this idea of reconciliation. But truly, in order to get there, we have to tell the truth and we have to do some repair. I talked with Reverend Lavinar in the Church of Sanctuary. He's composed, the kind of guy who thinks carefully about everything he says. I am a Unitarian Universalist minister. I've been in Tulsa for 20 years. And I arrived just at the time that the report was coming out about the massacre. So it was 80 years later. And finally, the community was getting the knowledge of what had happened for the first time in an official way. Over the past few years, All Souls has played a central role in pushing white Tulsans to reckon with their history. So we have this sort of split in the community right now where you have a lot of people, certainly people in the establishment and a lot of white people, quite frankly, who think we're in this period of reconciliation finally after 100 years. And then there's a lot of the rest of us who believe that we need to still tell the truth about what happened. And we don't know that truth, particularly as it pertains to the white side of the equation and the perpetrator side. And in this tug of war between whether you shield yourself from the truth or whether you dig deeper, your church is kind of squarely in the middle of that. Tell me the story about how your church has played some role in what happened. Yeah, so our church has an interesting history as it relates to the massacre. Our church was founded just a few weeks before the massacre happened at the YWCA. We didn't have a building. It was 27 people. But one of those 27 people was Richard Lloyd-Jones, who was the editor and owner of the Tulsa Tribune. And it was his paper, the evening paper, that broke the story that accused Dick Rowland of accosting Sarah Page in the elevator, which, of course, sparked the mob at the courthouse, at the jail, which eventually turned into the massacre. That story Reverend Lavinar is talking about, the one in Jones' paper, ran with the infamous headline, Nab Negro. The article said Dick Rowland, a young black shoeshiner, assaulted a white elevator attendant named Sarah Page. The story turned out to be false. Something that that also bothers a lot of us is afterward, on June 4th, while the embers were still burning in the fire, he wrote an editorial that said, I make no apology for what this paper has said for many years about cleaning up. And then he talked about 
Greenwood in the worst possible terms, devaluing the, the lives of people, devaluing the community and what it stood for and what it was. So cleaning up, he defends, in his words, cleaning up, which in fact was a murder, a massacre of hundreds of black people in this community. He defended that. Yeah, and not only that, he also was among those who helped to say this was a riot, blamed it on the black community. So therefore, the black community did not receive reparations of any kind because they became blamed for that. Richard Lloyd-Jones, he played a key role in sparking the violence and then in burning the truth of the massacre. You know, in our congregation, we make no apology. This man, he did what he did, and we condemn it. We condemn it outright. The impact of it, the results of it. At the same time, we've been working as a community for decades now, since the, since the early 60s, about 1960, when my predecessor, Dr. John Wolfe, came here and became a leader in the community in the civil rights movement. This church has really dedicated itself since that time to being an advocate for racial justice. Reverend Lavinar is using his position from the pulpit to teach folks about the massacre and to encourage his white congregants who make up 90% of the church to take responsibility. So it's one thing for us to look back and point our fingers at what people did a hundred years ago, but it's another thing to really do the work that we need to do to change ourselves today. One way All Souls is trying to do that, a program called Rewire. People learn about privilege and how white supremacy permeates American culture. Over the course of nine months, participants meet and talk through what they're learning. Reverend Lavinar knows how complicated this can be for white people because he's had to do this work on himself. I'm a straight white male with higher education, American citizenship, cisgendered, all of those things that have given a person a status within American culture. And so even though it wasn't told to me directly, Indirectly, I had got this message. It was people like me that built this country, the greatest country in the world, and all this stuff that made me inflated my sense of what it meant to be who I was in the world. And so to do the work of dismantling racism and rewiring our understanding of white supremacy and whiteness, it's not just dropping from, you know, down to the level of equality with everybody, it's really going from this sense of being this God's gift to the world, almost, Mm -hmm. down into a a deep sense of, wow, it was the legacy of whiteness that's been so violent and so terrible and, and atrocious. But in Tulsa, in a lot of places in this country, that's a tall order. So it's a long fall for a lot of white people to to learn the history and realize That's a reckoning with our own sense of self and identity. The surviving residents of Greenwood couldn't get back the lives they'd lost, but they tried to get compensation for all the property and businesses that had been destroyed. They filed insurance claims and lawsuits against the city, but very few people were ever paid. In fact, this massacre was investigated early on by a state grand jury. Congressman Hank Johnson, representing Georgia's 4th District. Which concluded that it was a race riot, and the race riot was precipitated by the black people whose community got burned. And so based on that finding, all of the claims that were filed by the Greenwood victims They were denied any kind of insurance coverage and, of course, any kind of uh, compensation for what had happened to them. Last week, Congressman Johnson introduced the Tulsa Greenwood Massacre Claims Accountability Act, legislation that would give the victims and their descendants another shot at restitution. It's going to take an act of Congress, literally, in order for them to have the courthouse doors open so that they can press their claims in accordance with federal law. Why do we need legislation as a remedy to this problem? Under the law, a case can be time barred because one waited too long in order to assert the claim. And so it's a technical defense that's available to every defendant who gets sued. And so we have to have a law that would waive that statute of limitations period, not for any reason other than the fact that The delay was induced by fraud, and it was not at the fault of the 
plaintiffs that they could not assert their claims in a timely manner. It was because of state action. So we need to undo that state action and also give these claimants an opportunity to claim damage under law that did not exist at the time. And of course, this legislation opens the federal courthouse doors, not the state courthouse, but the federal courthouse doors for litigation by these claimants. Right. I think that's an important distinction that you make here is that you're not guaranteeing any kind of reparation here. You're just simply opening up the available avenues people can pursue this accountability through the courts. You're just making it available to them. Is that correct? That's exactly right. This legislation is not about an award of reparation. It's about opening the courthouse doors so that the claimants can go into court and in accordance with with the law, assert their claims for damages. And the damages that flow from what happened a 100 years ago can be quantified. And so the personal property, the real estate, the lives of the people themselves who were killed, the descendants of those who were killed have causes of action to assert for the value of the life of those who were killed. And then when you start talking about the generational wealth, these descendants could have benefited through generational wealth transfer, which did not happen as a result of everything going up in smoke and being denied compensation at the outset. So for all of these years, you can quantify the effects of the loss and uh, they would be, in my opinion, substantial. Is there support in Congress for your bill, uh, in particular amongst Republicans in the House and in the Senate? I don't think we have any Republican co-sponsors in the House, and we're still working on a leader in the Senate to sponsor this legislation there. But momentum is building in the House. Every day we get more and more co-sponsors. Congressman, you held a hearing on this legislation a couple weeks ago, and you heard the testimony, as we all did, from three centenarians who shared their remembrances of surviving the Tulsa massacre. What did you make of their testimony? Yeah, they uh, their testimony was poignant. Mr. Van... The, you're talking about the veteran? The, the, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. He actually got choked up during his testimony a hundred years later, you know, and he is still visibly affected by what happened to him. We aren't just black and like pictures on a screen. We are flesh and blood. I was there when it happened. I'm still here. The ladies who testified reminded me of the um, elderly people in my family that uh, I have known, my grandmothers, you know, my aunts, and how they used to sit on the back porch and talk about things. But then when we came around, the young people, they would shush up and stop talking and they never let us know what they were talking about. But we found out later Mm -hmm. What had happened? The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men seen being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still... See black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. You know, it was really a strong sense of appreciation for what these folks have been through, what they have endured, and what they have accomplished in their time on this earth and for them to be able to appear before Congress in a hearing that was televised to the nation. And I felt, you know, it was deeply motivating for me and I'm sure for my colleagues who were there with me.
On Thursday, President Biden signed legislation to create a new federal holiday to commemorate Juneteenth, which marks the end of slavery in the United States. The Juneteenth celebration dates back to the last days of the Civil War, when Union soldiers landed in Galveston, Texas, on June 19, 1865, with news that the war had ended, and enslaved people learned they were freed two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Juneteenth is the first new federal holiday since Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day was created nearly 40 years ago. President Biden spoke at the ceremony at the White House Thursday. Juneteenth marks both the long, hard night of slavery and subjugation and a promise of a brighter morning to come. This is a day of profound, in my view, profound weight and profound power. A day in which we remember the moral stain, the terrible toll that slavery took on the country and continues to take. What I've long called America's original sin. The bill to make Juneteenth the federal holiday was passed by a unanimous vote in the Senate. But in the House, 14 Republicans, all white men, voted against the holiday. At Thursday's White House ceremony, Vice President Kamala Harris spoke about how enslaved people in Texas were held for over two years after President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. For more than two years, the enslaved people of Texas were kept in servitude. For more than two years, they were intentionally kept from their freedom for more than two years. And then on that summer day, 156 years ago, the enslaved people of Texas learned the news. They learned that they were free and they claimed their freedom. It was indeed an important day. To talk more about Juneteenth and the legacy of slavery, we're joined by the writer and poet Clint Smith. He's author of the new book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. He's also a staff writer at The Atlantic. Clint Smith, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So one of the chapters in your book is Galveston Island, and that is where Juneteenth comes from. Can you tell us the story in full of Juneteenth and your feelings today? This is the first day the federal holiday is being celebrated because June 19th actually falls on a Saturday. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, I went to Galveston, Texas. I was, I've been writing this book for four years, and I went two years ago, and it was marking the 40th anniversary when Texas uh, had made Juneteenth a state holiday, and it was the Al Edwards prayer breakfast. The late Al Edwards Sr. is the state legislator, a black state legislator, who made possible and advocated for the legislation that turned Juneteenth into a holiday, a state holiday in Texas. And so I went in part because I wanted to spend time with people who were the actual descendants of those who had been freed by Mason General Gordon Granger's General Order Number 3. And it was a really remarkable moment because I was in this place, on this island, on this land, with people for whom Juneteenth was not an abstraction. It was not a performance. It was not merely a symbol. It was part of their tradition. It was part of their lineage. It was an heirloom that had been passed down and that had made their lives possible. And so I think I gained a more intimate sense of what that holiday meant. And just broaden out more generally, you spoke to how it was more than two and a half years after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. And it was an additional two months after uh, General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox, effectively ending the Civil War. So it wasn't only two years after the Emancipation Proclamation, it was an additional two months after the Civil War was effectively over. And so for me, when I think of Juneteenth, part of what I think about is both the both endedness of it, that it is this moment in which we mourn the fact that freedom was kept from hundreds of thousands of enslaved people for years and for months after it had been attained by them. And then at the same time, celebrating the end of one of the most egregious things that this country has ever done. And I think what we're experiencing right now is a sort of marathon of cognitive dissonance in the way that 
is reflective of the black experience as a whole, because we are in a moment where we had the first new federal holiday in over 40 years, in a moment that is important to celebrate the, the Juneteenth and to celebrate the end of slavery and to have it recognized as a national holiday. And at the same time that is happening, we have a state-sanctioned effort across state legislatures across the country that is attempting to prevent teachers from teaching the very thing that helps young people understand the context from which Juneteenth emerges. And so I think that we recognize that as a symbol, Juneteenth is not that it matters, that it is important, but it is clearly not enough. Uh, And I think what the fact that Juneteenth has happened is reflective of a shift in our public consciousness, uh, but also of the work that Black Texans and Black people across this country have done for decades to make this moment possible. And can you explain more what happened in Galveston in 1865, and even, as you point out, what the Emancipation Proclamation actually did two and a half years before? Right. So the Emancipation Proclamation is, is often a widely misunderstood document. So it did not wholesale free the enslaved people throughout the Union. It did not free enslaved people in the Union. In fact, there were several border states that were part of the Union that continued to keep their enslaved laborers, states like uh, Kentucky, states like Delaware, states like Missouri. And what it did was it was a military edict that was attempting to free enslaved people in Confederate territory. But the only way that edict would be enforced is if Union soldiers went and took that territory. And so Part of what many enslavers realized right, and, and realized correctly was that Texas would be one of the last frontiers that Union soldiers would be able to come in and enforce the Emancipation Proclamation if they ever made it there in the first place, because this was two years prior to the end of the Civil War. And so you had enslavers from Virginia and from North Carolina and from all of these states in the Upper South who brought their enslaved laborers uh, and relocated to Texas. in in ways that increased the population of enslaved people in Texas by the tens of thousands. Uh, And so when Gordon Granger comes to Texas, he is making clear and letting people know that the Emancipation Proclamation had been enacted in ways that because of the topography of Texas and because of how spread out and rural and and far apart from different ecosystems of information many people were, uh, a lot of enslaved people didn't know that the Emancipation Proclamation had happened. And and some didn't even know that General Lee had surrendered at Appomattox two months prior. And so part of what this is doing is uh, making clear to the 250,000 enslaved people in Texas um, that they had actually been granted freedom two and a half years prior and that the war that this was all fought over had ended two months before. At Thursday's presidential signing ceremony, Joe Biden got down on his knee to greet Opal Lee the 94-year-old activist known as the grandmother of Juneteenth. This is Biden speaking about Lee. As a child growing up in Texas, she and her family uh, would celebrate Juneteenth. And Juneteenth, 1939, when she was 12 years old, the white, a white mob torched her family home. But such hate never stopped her anymore to stop the vast majority of you I'm looking at from this podium. Over the course of decades, she's made it her mission to see that this day came. It was almost a singular mission. She's walked for miles and miles, literally and figuratively, to bring attention to Juneteenth, to make this day possible. And this is Opal Lee speaking at Harvard's School of Public Health earlier this week. I don't want people to think Juneteenth is just one day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There is too much educational components. We have too much to do. I even advocate that we do Juneteenth, that we celebrate freedom from the 19th of June to the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. We were free on the 4th of July, 1776. Mm -hmm. That would be celebrating freedom. You understand? if we were able to do that. And that is Opal Lee, considered the grandmother of Juneteenth. And Clint, one of the things you do in your book is you introduce us to grassroots activists. And this doesn't come from the top. This comes from years of organizing, as you point out, in Galveston itself, and with people like—not that there's anyone like Opal Lee. Yeah, no, absolutely. Part of what this book is doing, it is an attempt to uplift the stories uh, of people who don't often get the attention 
um, that they deserve in how they shape the historical record. So that means the public historians who work at these historical sites and plantations. That means the museum curators. That means the activists and the organizers, people like Take Them Down NOLA in New Orleans, who are who pushed the city council and the mayor to make possible the fact that in 2017, these statues would come down, uh, several Confederate statues in my hometown in New Orleans. And part of when I think about someone like Ms. Opoli, part of what I think about is our proximity to this period of history, right? Slavery existed for 250 years in this country and has only not existed for 150. And, you know, the way that I was taught about slavery growing up in elementary school, we were made to feel as if it was something that happened in the Jurassic Age, that it was the Flintstone, the dinosaurs, and slavery, almost as if they all happened at the same time. But the woman who opened the National Museum of African American History and Culture alongside the Obama family in 2016 was the daughter of an enslaved person, not the granddaughter or the great granddaughter or the great granddaughter, the daughter of an enslaved person is who opened this museum, the Smithsonian in 2016. And so there's for clearly for so many people, there are people who are alive today, who were raised by, who knew, who were in community with, who loved people who were born into intergenerational chattel bondage. And so this history that we tell ourselves was a long time ago wasn't, in fact, that long ago at all. And part of what so many activists and grassroots public historians and, and organizers across this country recognize is that if we don't fully understand and account for this history that actually wasn't that long ago, that in the scope of human history was only just yesterday, then we won't fully understand the how our, our contemporary landscape of inequality today, we won't understand how slavery shaped the political, economic, and social infrastructure of this country. And when you have a more acute understanding of how slavery shaped the infrastructure of this country, then you're able to more effectively look around you and see how the reason one community looks one way and another community looks another way is not because of the people in those communities, but is it because of what has been done to those communities generation after generation after generation. And I think that that is central to the sort of uh, public pedagogy that so many of these activists and organizers who have been attempting to make Juneteenth a holiday and bring attention to it as an entry point to think more, more wholly and, and honestly about the legacy of slavery have been doing. We've just heard clips today, starting with Vox laying out a detailed history of the Tulsa Massacre. Counterspin explained the extremely deliberate efforts to erase the history of anti-black terrorism. Into America looked at the great effort that must be undertaken to teach history and for white people to come to terms with the legacy of anti-black violence. Today Explained discussed new proposed legislation that could open the door for legal remedies to be pursued by the descendants of the victims of the Tulsa Massacre, and Democracy Now! discussed the significance of the enshrining of Juneteenth as a national holiday. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the Al Franken podcast telling stories of many small towns around the country where the prosperous black residents were terrorized and driven from their homes by white mobs. They also explained the concrete rationale for reparations, and the Majority Report explored the stories that are still told to this day to uphold the myth of the lost cause and the innocence of the Confederates. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. Today's clips in particular, I really encourage everyone to hear these clips. They are full of fascinating stories and insights, and they're just way too long to fit in the main show, but really worth your time. So to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... We'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Allison from Boulder, Colorado. My dad was on the University of Wyoming baseball team during the protest against BYU with the black arm bands. The baseball coach threatened to kick anyone who spoke out in favor of the black students off the team. The team had one black player and the rest were white. So, in a great example of a system of power defending itself, the white athletes were punished or threatened with punishment for speaking out as well. 
When it comes to universities, and funding and paying the players though, I disagree highly with leaving it up to the universities for a number of reasons. I have worked as a student advisor, and also assisted faculty and students in getting grants at a large state university in the Pac-12. Their formula for funding their athletics programs is unfortunately very common for an NCAA public university. First of all, facilities, including the ones that are just for athletes, are paid for out of student tuition, so they don't have to pay for that. Also, in order to pay for certain very expensive things, they borrow money from other parts of the university. For example, in about 2003, at the University of Colorado, the one I worked for, the athletics department borrowed about $8 million from the College of Arts and Sciences for some skyboxes they were never able to sell. They still haven't paid it back. Again in 2013 they borrowed $5 million for some giant eyesore lights that were supposed to help with televised games. They still haven't paid that back either, so basically they shift the cost to other places in order to look like they are in the black. The universities and the athletics departments especially will find ways out of having to pay the athletes money themselves if they even start paying. More specifically, they could pass cost on to students. I think it should be mandated and funded from something higher level than the universities. Thanks for the awesome show. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. We have late-breaking activism, so now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. This week... As you may have heard, Senate Republicans blocked the procedural vote to even debate the For the People Act. So it's time for Democrats, and I think the promotional writers for the real world said it best, they need to stop being polite and start getting real. It's depressing to say, but this summer is their last chance to get anything else passed before 2022 midterm fever kicks in. They had five months. That was it. Welcome to American politics. What's even more amazing is the lack of focus on the fact that if Democrats don't pass voting reform now, voter suppression laws will all but guarantee they lose seats in 2022 and beyond. This means handing over what's left of our democracy to the GOP, which has wrapped itself in lies and conspiracy theories and insurrection, as it fully embraces fascism and racism. The stakes couldn't be higher. That's why indivisible and local grassroots groups are taking to the streets. During the July recess, June 28th through July 10th, public, press-worthy events will be held across the country to put pressure on all senators to do whatever it takes to pass election reform. That includes abolishing the filibuster. The GOP likely can't be shamed, but Democrats can absolutely be shamed into being bolder. Find an event near you at deadlinefordemocracy.org. Now, I want to finish up today with a sort of revelatory factoid. There's been a lot of talk in the show trying to drive home the point of how recent our history is, that we should brush aside any suggestion that the history about racism is so long ago that it doesn't matter. And this tidbit of information really helps drive that home. So the next time you hear someone say, oh, you know, slavery, racism, that was a long time ago, didn't we solve that? Let them know that Harriet Tubman was alive during both Thomas Jefferson's and Ronald Reagan's lives. That was a little factoid that went somewhat viral on the internet in the last, you know, couple of months. It's been fact-checked as true, and I, I found that really astonishing and uh, and helped drive home the important point of how recent this history is. The other thing we talked about is how systematic the effort was to suppress black prosperity in America, and that it was done using textbook domestic terrorism, while the government, at best, turned a willfully blind eye. So luckily, times have changed. No, we don't live in a time when domestic terrorists would dare attempt to subvert our democracy or anything like that, because they know the times have changed and the government would do anything but tacitly endorse such actions by, you know, like refusing to investigate them or something like that. Sarcasm. But even though times are somewhat different, we need to make sure to never take 
even a single avoidable step down that road, lest we risk finding ourselves reliving some of the darkest periods of our history. So join in on those upcoming marches with details at DeadlineForDemocracy.org. And as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes, of course. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and so on. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or from right inside the Apple Podcast app, if that's your style. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.